are some things that can only be said using metaphorical poetic language. Myth then can allow us to see things that intellect can't through our imaginations. He will say famously that reason is the organ of truth, imagination is the organ of meaning. Myth kept making him experience longing, and he wanted to know where the longing was coming from. There was still something keeping him from becoming a Christian, and it was he didn't understand why does somebody dying on a cross for me 2,000 years ago make a difference in my life? And Tolkien said, your problem is you're refusing to see the myth as a myth. The death of Jesus should work on you in the same way that the other myths do. It just has this one key difference. It actually happened in history. Any kind of story, any kind of poetry, great films, great art, great myth that appeals to the imagination motivates us to be better people in terms of those um, just sentiments. Welcome to Lesser Known Lewis, where two friends and C.S. Lewis fans explore his lesser known works. I'm Sean. And I'm Jordan. Join us for season three on metaphor and myth where Lewis's writings on language, imagination, and storytelling will help us come to see, know, and taste reality more deeply. You began to talk about this a little bit, but, but the moment of C.S. Lewis's conversion, where he takes what he knows about Balder and Bacchus and all these others, and, and it comes together for him where he realizes, oh my goodness, like the myth became fact. Um, and, and to maybe do a little bit of abuse to John, you know, John says the word um, was made flesh. You know, it's almost that like the myth was made flesh. The myth was made historical. Um, what can we say about that, that exact moment? How did myth actually lead Lewis to becoming uh, a Christian? Uh, good question. So I think we can focus on two things. One is... Um, an experience of the numinous, and Lewis will talk about the numinous, I think, in his opening chapter in The Problem of Pain. Without that experience of, of something transcendent, um, religion might not be hanging around as stubbornly as it does. Um, and of course, we have the experience of transcendent things because there's a transcendent reality. Um, you know, there is something um, larger, there is something beyond. Lewis had such experiences um, of, of an incredible longing, experiences usually evoked by beauty uh, from very early in life. Remembers the first one he ever experienced was um, when he saw a little miniature diorama, a model of a, a garden that his brother had built in the lid of a cookie tin. Uh, so, you know, for us, cookies are put into bags and for um, Lewis, they would have put into, you know, a little tin box. Yeah. So his brother built this little model and it felt Lewis with with this incredible longing. He eventually gave this this word uh, two names. One was Zainzucht, which is a German name that means longing that cannot be fulfilled. All right. Uh, deep desire that cannot be fulfilled. And yet the desire is so pleasurable 
that to have this unfulfillment is better than being fed when you're hungry and being full. Uh, he also called it joy. And experiences of joy then were with him throughout his life. They were typically evoked by beauty, either in nature or in myth. All right. Hmm. And um, he talks about a couple of moments early in his childhood when Norse myth especially um, captured him. Uh, one was when he was looking at um, um, a, um, I guess it would be like a, a catalog uh, so that you could make purchases of records. And so Wagner's uh, records had just been um, released with illustrations by Arthur Rackham. And by the way, you can find those uh, illustrations online. They're beautiful. So if you look up Arthur Rackham and Wagner, you'll come up with those illustrations. They're really quite stunning. And they just sent him into northernness, right? He called it northernness. Um, he wasn't even quite sure what he was looking at, but it was overwhelming to him. Now, I, I think that might have actually been the second time, not the first. Um, the other one, though, is, is more beautifully poetic. It's when he was reading um, Longfellow, and Longfellow had a poem called Tegner's Drapa, um, and the opening lines go, I, um, I heard a cry that said, Balder, Balder the beautiful is dead, is dead, and echoed in the misty air like the mournful cry of sunward sailing cranes. Well, it was really just those first few lines. I heard a cry, I heard a voice that cried. I heard a voice that cried, Bar, Balder the beautiful is dead, is dead. And immediately again, he was swept up. He didn't even know who Balder was, but there was something about know, the form of the words, the shame, shape of the words. The, con the collection of those words together in just that way. Same experience that Tolkien had with certain words. Um, that experience caused great longing in him. So he loved, he experienced longing through fantastic literature, through myth. Um, so that was, that was a one source then, that myth continued to impact him. Myth um, kept making him experience longing. And he wanted to know where the longing was come for, coming from. What was the thing I'm longing? I am. I was longing for. All right. So myth affected him in that way. The other way it affected him then was in a conversation um, that he had in September 1931 um, with uh, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, right? Tolkien of um, Lord of the Rings fame, and a fellow named Hugo Dyson. Tolkien and Dyson were Christians. Uh, by then, in 1931, Lewis had actually returned to theism, all right? He had been an atheist. You know, he was a believer as a child. Then he became an atheist. Uh, he became a theist um, in 1930, um, although he said it was in 1929. But according to Andrew Lazo, uh, it was actually 1930, and Lewis got the date wrong. And I think Andrew is right. Um, but he, there was still something keeping him from becoming a Christian, and it was, he didn't understand what the point was. Why does somebody dying on a cross for me 2,000 years ago make a difference in my life? And Tolkien said, your problem is you're refusing to see the myth as a myth. All right. You want to, you're trying to analyze it with your reason. 
you're not receiving it with your imagination. Tolkien said to him, every other time you see the myth of a dying and reviving God, you cherish it, you enjoy it. It is awe-inspiring to you. All right, so there's this aesthetic experience that Lewis has with myth. Right. right. And, uh, but you're, you're willing to see it everywhere else except in the Gospels. And Lewis said, yeah, but, you know, the Gospels are claiming to be true, and myth is just lies, even though it's breathed through silver. And Tolkien said to him, no, it's not. Myth is invention. It's invention about reality in the same way that words are invention about reality, right? You, you call a tree a tree. Why? Um, you, you make up words to identify things. And in the same way, you make up stories to explain reality. It's not speaking falsehood at all. And so if you receive Christ, not theologically, but mythically, um you're going to receive him in his full potency. Uh, you're going to accept um, imaginatively what your reason can't quite grasp. And um, uh, two weeks later or so, Lewis found that he'd become a Christian. Wow. That he wow. believed in Christ. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Almost, um, you, you mentioned... Uh... Joseph Campbell earlier, and we, we don't have time in this particular episode. I'm sure later in the season we'll get into some comparisons between Joseph Campbell's approach to myth and C.S. Lewis's, and there's been an, uh, you know some work done on that as well. But um, but it's funny how I, I would say discovering the myth. You know, you use the story of the butterfly that was beauty and 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 transcended these other butterflies in so many ways. Um, and in the same way, I think when when many of us encounter the similarities of myth of different cultures and and times, and then we compare that to Christ, we have almost the opposite reaction that Lewis did, where he said, "Oh, this makes this this historical claim of Jesus on the cross and Jesus emerging out of the empty tomb. It makes it more real to me." And so many others would say, "Oh, this just this just uh, illustrates it as a fabrication to me." Bill Maher. Is a, is a famous example of that. He, yeah. His primary reason, um, the, his, his first go-to reason for rejecting Christianity is he says, it's not original, all right? Yeah. It's just a copy of everything <laughs> yeah. else. Yeah. For Lewis, that's the very reason to believe in it because God was preparing everyone else yes. for um, by telling the same story so that when... Um, myth became fact when the true version, the one that actually happened in history came along, people would be able to recognize it. Uh, so yes, quite so. Um, and that's again, on the, in that conversation that Lewis had with Tolkien, that's, that's something Tolkien tried to emphasize to him. Um, Lewis, you know, the, the, the death of Jesus should work on you in the same way that the other myths do. It just has this one key difference. It actually happened in history. Right. Yes. Yes. I'm trying to um, put in my own words, um, maybe summarize just to see if I'm following correctly, um, because uh, I really enjoy philosophical things and this topic in particular of Lewis, but I always fear that I'm not quite catching it, <laughs> that I'm not, I don't have a philosophical background. Neither um, do I. <laughs> well, <laughs> You seem to be doing quite well with it. Yeah, I've had to um, force myself. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Well, let me let me uh, 
put this out there and let me know if I'm on the right track or, or correct my understanding. Um, could we say maybe that reason and intellect can't grasp everything in reality that there is to grasp? And, and in particular, maybe reason and intellect, obviously we can't know everything there is to know about God through our limited human uh, understanding and our intellect and our, our rationality. Um, but maybe is myth uh, something that helps us know reality and especially know God and Christ in a way that our reason and intellect are limited um, just because just they don't, they can't go beyond a certain point and, and imagination is maybe one way that we can experience God um, differently or different parts of God or more of God or, or experience him in a different way. Is that helpful, accurate? There is nothing that you just said that was wrong. So good job. Okay, good. All right, so that's yeah, <laughs> good job. So, so, I'm so glad first, I'm tracking. Yeah, that's great. So your, your, your first point, um, are there things that intellect can't get us to? Lewis talks very specifically about that in his essay, The Language of Religion, mm. uh, in which he will say there are some things that can only be said using metaphorical poetic language. Um, there are some things in our experience that can only be communicated, they can't, they can't be clearly communicated. They can't be communicated through plain, ordinary language. They can't be communicated through um, scientific language. They can only be communicated through the kind of poetic language, through through um, symbol, metaphor, um, and the emotions that those evoke. Um, most of what we experience every day, all day, can only be communicated in that poetic fashion, Lewis would say. Hmm. Um, now then, myth then, the second thing that you said was that, that myth then can allow us to see things that intellect can't. Again, that's dead on. Um, that's correct. It will allow us to see things through our imaginations. And then you em emphasized imagination the third uh, as your third point. Now, imagination is a dangerous thing as much as C.S. Lewis loves it. Um, hmm. uh, the three of us were talking about this um, Northwind Seminary program that I teach for, and we talked about the idea of romantic theology. Central to romantic theology is the importance of imagination in epistemology, right. is that imagination has value in terms of knowledge. Of all the inklings, though, the one inkling who spends the most time talking about the dangers of imagination, believe it or not, is C.S. Lewis. Right. Um, Barfield looks at imagination more positively than any of the others. Um, Tolkien is positive about it. I think Charles Williams is positive about it. Lewis is certainly positive about imagination because imagination is where myth is apprehended and because imagination is where poetic language um, is both created and is apprehended. So yes, to your point, we can learn in the imagination. However, Lewis will say famously, in an essay called Blusples and Flalensferies, A Semantic Nightmare, he will say famously <laughs> that 
reason is the organ of truth. Imagination is the organ of meaning. And the, now the opposite of truth is falsehood, but the opposite of meaning is nonsense. So if I say um, the fly is plaid as it washes the windows, dropping shiny objects into the bathtub, that is nonsense. Right. It is not falsehood. Right? You see the difference? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. All right. So if I say the, you know, the sky is plaid, that is falsehood. But the other statement I made was nonsense. Imagination grasps meanings. And as such, it is the precursor to reason. Hmm. Now, reason, then, is the area where we deal with either truth or falsehood. So, again, I make a statement. The sky is blue. Your experience, you don't even need reason for this. Your experience tells you the sky is blue. Therefore, true statement, right? If I make a statement, the sky is plaid, you know what plaid means, and you know the sky is not plaid. Falsehood. But both of those statements have something in common. You understood their meaning. Both Mm. statements had meaning. Mm. Okay? It wasn't that one was true and the other one nonsensical, or the one meant something and the other one didn't. It was that one meaning was true, one meaning was false. Imagination is the source of meaning. It is the prerequisite to either truth or falsehood for Lewis. Now, if that's the case, then, in the imagination, we can generate lies. And so imagination is dangerous. I'm way oversimplifying what Lewis would do here, but um, I, I think it's the only way to explain what is really, really difficult in Lewis studies. Imagination is dangerous. Screw tape knows this and you will see it right there in letter number one. And I think again, in letter number two, if not, then it's in letter number three. You want to get people a buzz in either their experiences or in their imagination, all right? Or later, Screwtape will talk about um, uh, this, this you know, series of concentric circles to understand the human being. At the very center is the will. That's what the enemy wants control of. That's what we, the demons, want control of. Outside the will is your reasoning of powers, all right? Outside of that is imagination and experience and emotion. Take ideas or thoughts or feelings and push them as far out of the center as possible. Make them feel like they're compassionate people, but make sure they never act compassionately toward anyone. Fill their imaginations with the idea that, man, if I'll just go on Facebook and I will stand up for human rights by posting things on Facebook, I am really getting things done. You know what? I, I want to fight poverty. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go on, on social media 
and I'm going to write posts, right? Um, I'm certainly not going to give any of my money to feed the poor or anything like that, but uh, I will write posts. And in doing so, I have these imaginative experiences that make me think I'm actually helping people and being a good person when I'm not. So let's confuse people's imaginations. Of course, the great example of this in Screwtape is um, when Wormwood asks, should I make myself known to the human? Screwtape says, no. We want humans either to think that we don't exist or to picture us a certain way. Picture us as, picture demons as uh, men in red tights with horns and tails and a pitchfork. Yeah. And as soon as they picture us that way, they'll think, well, that's unbelievable. Mm. And therefore they won't believe in it. All right. Same thing with God. Um, a, a former student of mine once said, uh, I was talking to someone and the, someone said, I can't believe in a, in a, in a big man who's just sitting up in heaven with a button to the trap door of hell, right? Old man with a long beard. And he replied to her saying, good. Cause I don't believe in that either. Yeah. Right. But you see what that, that, that woman had done. She had confused an image with an idea. All right. Um, I don't believe in a devil with a pitchfork. I believe in an angel who had incredible power among the angels and through pride sinned and became, if you will, the king of demons. Yeah. All right. They are fallen angels. So Lewis has this wonderful little essay called Horrid Red Things, which I believe you can find most easily in God in the Dock. And in the essay, Lewis recalls sitting on a train and overhearing a conversation between a mother and her daughter. And in the conversation, the mother said to the daughter, you mustn't take too many aspirin. They're poisonous. And the daughter replied, well, why? If you smash them open, they don't have any horrid red things inside. So this young girl had a correct idea and a false image. She understood what poison was. But she also thought that poison consisted of horrid red things. In the essay, then, Lewis makes an astonishing statement about apologetics. He says, there are two things that we must do if we wish to continue to defend the faith. The first thing we must do is hold on to the miraculous elements, the supernatural elements of the Gospels. All right? Um, Lewis lived in a day when the Gospels were being demythologized. Yes. Uh, and he said, you, you can't do that because without those supernatural elements, Christianity is not a true religion. Christianity relies on the incarnation of God and death, burial, and resurrection. Um, and so we said we must hold on to that. So when I say that to the two of you, that makes perfect sense, right? Right, right, right. Uh, but now the second thing he said we must do if we want to continue to be successful in spreading the gospel or defending the gospel, he said, we must teach people that there is a difference between um, reasoning and imagining. And I think it's for that reason. It's because people Hmm. confuse images for ideas and screw tape will use that against them. They have an image of what the church is, not the truth of what the church is. 
They have an image of what Christians are. Um, they have an image that's been fed to them by uh, Hollywood, by Screwtape, of what religious people are. And that, that false image then is what they take for truth rather than anything like truth itself. So the imagination is incredibly important because it's dangerous and can lead to falsehood. But then we could also talk about why it's incredibly important in terms of how it can inspire and bring people to Christ. You've been a high school teacher and, and, a, and a teacher of everything from a doctoral student down to the undergrad level. And, and uh, you know, as I listen... I often think of my freshmen and, and they'll ask the simplest and clearest questions because they haven't yet been encrusted with all of the, you know, you give me a little smirk on the word epistemology, even where you, they, we haven't, they haven't been encrusted with all that just yet. I suppose what I'd like to ask you then, maybe just as we conclude, there's been many things in this conversation that I feel would be um, excellent reasons for us to take myth more seriously. But if you were just talking to a freshman today um, and, and you had, you know, you, you know, this is going to be a passing in the hallway kind of conversation. You had maybe two minutes to speak to them. And they said, they said, Professor, why, why should I pay attention to myth? What's the, what's the place of myth now in my life? Um, and, and you were going to give them the Lewis answer. Um, how would you, why is it important and why should they care? Because uh, it'll inspire you. Hmm. Um, because story is what motivates you. And this really then is, is going to go back to the, the, the thing I left off on um, in terms of why imagination is so important. What really motivates us to be good isn't ideas. It's hmm. images. It's wow. stories. Wow. Um, you know, you say, to that, you say to that kid, read great stories because those stories are going to make you into a better Christian. Read the yeah. biographies of Christians. You know, read Fox's Book of Martyrs or read DC Talks Jesus Freaks, right? Yeah. Read right. stories because those those are the things that inspire you, not ideas. Odds are, you know, you freshman kids, you came to this school because you had a youth minister who was so cool yeah. and who made Christianity so cool to you that you fell in love with it, that you fell in love with Jesus. And that person, that hero in your life, uh, is what inspired you. And they may have taught you some really deep truths, but they presented an image in their lives. Um, they presented the fact of Christ by living out uh, Christianity uh, in your daily life. Um, uh, and Lewis talks about this in The Abolition of Man, where he says, if we really want to get people to develop morally, we have to build chests in them. And the way to do that mm. is to teach them what are called just sentiments, uh, to teach them that there are certain things in life that are really good and enjoyable and certain things in life that are really not. Um, this is why it's dangerous to, to let young children see horror films, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the kid who likes to um, torture cats and bury dogs up to their head and, and run over them with a lawnmower, you know, we say that kid's going to be a serial killer. But attraction to ugliness, and of course Lewis talks about this in That Hideous Strength as well, 
attraction to ugliness sends us in the wrong direction morally as well. Yeah. And and this idea of coolness. Now this isn't this is not Lewis vocabulary. This is Charlie vocabulary. <laughs> the Lewis vocabulary would be just sentiments, right? right. Um, uh, ordinate ordinate feelings and and ideas. Um, but this coolness factor, as I like to call it, uh, really is represented in terms of moral development in the difference between reason and imagination, um, and mm. in the difference then between guilt and shame. All right, so we've got our reason side. Our reason teaches us truth, right? And in our reason side, we know what's right and wrong. When we violate that, we might feel guilty, okay? But then we have our imagination side. Our imagination side, it, it knows the rules because it's married to reason. You know, they're not totally separate from each other. Um, but when it, it experiences a violation of its moral sense, it does not experience guilt. It experiences shame. And guilt and shame are not the same thing. Right. Guilt is the recognition that I have done something wrong. And it's, it tends to be an intellectual recognition, though it certainly comes with feelings. Shame is the recognition that I have not lived up to my hero's code. Wow. To my sense of what's cool. All right. Uh, and, and, and this is the difference between knowing what's right and, and thinking that it's cool. And the best way I can explain it, and, and it would be a good way to explain it at a Bible college, is the difference between thinking that virginity is right and thinking that it's cool. Right. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I have never yet heard one <laughs> kid at a Bible college who was training to be a preacher walk up to a girl, one young man, and say, hey, 20, turn 21 today, still a virgin. <laughs> oh, yeah. means you can trust <laughs> me on a date. All right? Yeah. Guys, yeah. you know, there aren't that many people who run around and say, man, virginity is so cool, right? In fact, in our culture, right, in, in Western culture, a young man who are Christian face a kind of um, um, double personality, right? Um, we used to call it schizophrenia, though that was a misnomer, mm -hmm. where on the one hand, if a 21-year-old man is a virgin, he has no reason to feel guilt, but he might be ashamed because mm -hmm. in our culture, being a man means a certain kind of sexual prowess right? On the other hand, a Christian man who has not lived up to God's expectations might feel guilt regarding his sexuality, but he won't feel embarrassed. Shame and embarrassment are the same thing. Right, right. All right. Huh. How do you get kids, how do you get young people to think of virginity not just as right, but as also cool? And the, and, and the distinction there is one is in the reason, one is in the imagination. How do we make any moral stance cool? And it's got to be through the telling of stories. Only once in my life have I experienced virginity as a cool thing. And if you guys can remember back to the 90s and Promise Keepers, yeah, I went mm -hmm. to a Promise Keepers rally. It was a Texas stadium in Dallas, home of the Dallas Cowboys. You can't get cooler than Whoa. that, right? Yeah. 55,000 men there to love Jesus, right, and learn about him. And there was a speaker talking about sex, and he said, 
I want all the virgins in the audience to stand up because we're going to pray for you, right? And I looked around for the five or six guys who might stand up, right, in this situation. <laughs> um, but there must have been fifteen or 20,000 young men who stood up. And all of the rest of us just went, <sighs> you know, we were so happy. We were so proud. And in that one brief shining moment, virginity wasn't just right. Virginity for a man, it wasn't just mm-hmm. right in our culture. It was also cool. Huh. Hmm. So myth, any kind of story, any kind of poetry, well, not bad stories or bad poetry, great films, great art, great myth that appeals to the imagination, motivates us to be better people in terms of those um, just sentiments. So that's, that's the long answer to the question to the kid who says, why myth? I, wow. I have to say that I love the meta-ness of that answer that you, it settled on my heart when you told the story, even though I fully right. understood <laughs> right. everything yeah. that you had said leading up to yeah. that story. It just absolutely worked. Sorry, Jordan, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that that blew my mind and and filled in some understanding about a whole bunch of topics in just a couple minutes, but it filled in some understanding of things from abolition of man that I've always struggled to understand. Mm. But like, like Sean is saying, when you illustrate it and put it, or as Lewis encourages us to do, put it in the vernacular. I went, now I'm like, Oh, I get it. And now there's all these horizons opening up and I'm going to be thinking about, um, that for a long time now. Um, yeah, thank you for that. I am, and and I I have written a couple of bits on on that, which um, are out there. Um, I can certainly send them to you if you're sure. interested. But for folks who would like to um, like to read some of that, uh, let me recommend a couple of books. Um, yeah, yeah. These are anthologies, and I wrote one chapter for the anthology, so okay. I've already been paid, so I don't make extra money for <laughs> telling folks about this, but. Um, uh, Square Halo Press has produced two very nice books. One is called Lewis and the Arts, and one is called Tolkien and the Arts. In the Lewis and the Arts book, I talk about what is art for from Lewis's point of view, especially given that evangelical Christianity in the West, especially Protestant evangelical Christianity, ha- sort of lost the purpose and meaning of art. Um, and its function. So I talk about that from Lewis's point of view. The other book then um, I talk about, uh, just as I talk about um, Lewis's theory of myth in the Fawn's Bookshelf, I have a chapter on Tolkien's theory of myth, um, which is similar to Lewis's, but also has some really interesting differences. Hmm. Wow. Well, I will, um, I'll put links to that in the show notes and <laughs> all of the other things that you've uh, mentioned so far. Um but is there, is there anything else you wanted to uh, mention? I've, I mentioned your one book, Fawn's Bookshelf, but I know you have two others, which I've got. I just haven't read yet. Um, well, uh, some of the questions that we were talking about, some of the epistemological issues that we were dealing with mm-hmm. in terms of reality, I do take up in my most recent book, which is called The Lion's Country, C.S. Lewis's Theory of the Real. So if we think in terms of fact, truth, and myth uh, as as a core to Lewis's epistemology, 
Um, I've, I've, I've knocked out the book on myth and I've knocked out now the book on fact, on reality. Um, and um, my first book is, is a fun little book, which we can talk, which I know we're going to talk about later, but it's yeah. Light, C.S. Lewis's first and final short story. Um, and uh, so that's out there. Uh, and then I did mention I've written some science fiction books, um, some Bible studies. I My sci-fi books are fun. I would love to say that they are great, but I don't want to lie. Uh, I hope that they're... <laughs> I hope that they're good and people might enjoy them. If folks are interested in looking for my books, uh, if they'll just look, uh, go to Amazon and type in Charlie W. Star. Just use that letter W uh, for my middle initial. And um, books I have either written chapters in or uh, books that I've written should appear uh, in Amazon at Charlie uh, Charlie W. Star. Mm-hmm. And Star has two R's. Two R's, yes, that's yeah. right. And for those who are interested, um, you know, the C.S. Lewis Foundation out in California, they're constantly doing wonderful things, uh, mm-hmm. including lots of great um, uh, conferences, meetings, uh, retreats. Uh, they've got a really nice retreat coming up in October uh, in Texas at a place called Camp Allen, which is not far from Houston. And um, you can go to the where, their website to look that up. And I mention it because they have uh, kindly asked me to be the uh, keynote speaker uh, for that conference. Uh, And I'm thrilled. And some of the other uh, folks are going to be there. Just awesome heavy hitters uh, Mm. in the Lewis world. So um, that would be a great conference to, uh, uh, to attend. We're going to be focusing on um, remembering the signs uh, in the silver chair. uh, The Narnia book. So that's, I'm looking forward. I, I, I'm not quite, I have an idea of what I'm going to talk about, but um, I haven't gotten to start putting that together yet. So that's going to be a fun project for me here later in the that's summer. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Wow. Well, I am now just so excited, like vibrating excited to get into uh, this season. Most of the essays that you mentioned in this uh, conversation were covering this season. And uh, yeah, like you said, uh, probably an episode that comes out around. Um, late November, December time, we'll be on that short story, Light, and we'll have you back to talk about that. It's uh, The story itself, I think, is so interesting and fun, and um, your your kind of background uh, behind it, I've heard you talk about, and it's also very interesting. More, uh, more kind of Indiana Jones type yes. uh, story there, yeah. Yes, very so, much so. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Well, and, and, and thank the both of you. You know, this mm. is just so much fun for me when I get to do this. Um, you know, we've all got those those um, hobbies that we have that we can't share with other people. You can't have yeah. polite conversation. You know, you don't <laughs> go to a party and somebody wants to sit and talk to you about, you know, your fun, cool nerd stuff like Star Wars or, or whatever. And, and certainly then um, people don't want to dive as deeply into C.S. Lewis's some of us want to. So to be able to sit with um, new friends um, from another country um, yes. and and uh, be able to, to share this with you all and, and to talk about it and get your insights to and enjoy each other's company, truly delightful for me. Thank you all so much for inviting me. And I'm, and I'm so happy I get to do it again with you later this year. Well, we look forward to it for sure.
Well, friends, I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. And I hope you're beginning to see why myth is so important, why myth matters. Because it's with myth that we are able to perceive reality with our imaginations. And like Charlie said, imagination is a precursor to intellect. So it comes before reason. So our culture really values reason, but it really undervalues the importance of imagination. While we use it for entertainment, we don't really think it's that important. Lewis thought otherwise. As Charlie pointed out, imagination grasps meaning. And these things like metaphor and myth help us perceive reality in a way that reason falls short. And so the rest of the hundred or so essays that we'll eventually cover by Lewis fall into three categories in my opinion. There's obviously ones on literature, there's ones that are more about reason and apologetics, and there's ones that have an ethical focus. But of course, myth is important to literature, but now I hope you see that myth and imagination also form an important counterpart to reason. But as Charlie was saying at the end of this episode, imagination and and things like myth are important to help us perceive meaning in reality and developing good imaginations is necessary to developing right and just sentiments or developing our ethical sensitivity. So that's why this season is so important on metaphor and myth. If you want to read more from Charlie, of course, I'll put links to his Amazon page and his other writings in the show notes. His two books that are most central to these themes are The Fawn's Bookshelf, which is about this conversation on why myth matters to C.S. Lewis. His other book is The Lion's Country, C.S. Lewis's Theory of the Real. It forms a really good counterpart to this whole conversation on myth. And if you want to hear Charlie talk about that book, our friend Matt Bush at Pints with Jack just put out a great interview with Charlie about that book. And I really encourage you to listen to that conversation as well, because it just pairs really well with today's episode. Our next episode will be with Dr. Jerry Root on C.S. Lewis's essay, Is Theology Poetry? We're doing this essay first in this season because it is kind of a condensed version of all the essays we'll cover after that. So it's really a must read. It's a pivotal essay. And I really think Lewis is at his best in this essay. It's very readable, very enjoyable. And I think you'll get a lot out of it. If you want to find where to read it, you can go to pintswithjack.com essays. And if you're curious about what other essays we're doing after that, head over to our webpage, which is pintswithjack.com LKL. Thanks again so much for listening, and thanks, of course, to our patrons who are really keeping this podcast humming along, especially our top-tier patron, David. If you'd like to help us in our mission of making the lesser-known works of Lewis more well-known, you can support us at Patreon. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to being with you again soon.